If you've been following along in our series through, um, as we've jumped from Romans back into the end of Genesis, you might, if you've been paying attention, then you might um, think that we should be on Genesis chapter 38 this morning, and we are not. We are skipping after over chapter 38, and we are moving to chapter 39. And you might think, if you know what happens in Genesis chapter 38, that this was, um, is a delightful story of wickedness and deception and all kinds of lovely things. And you might think that we are skipping over it for that reason, and that is not so. Um, this is the story of Judah and Tamar, and we'll actually preach through that chapter, uh, the Advent before last, when we were looking at the women of Advent, the women in Matthew's Gospel. So it's already been preached, and in a way to help us move along a little bit quicker, we're going to skip it and move on to 39. But it also, it kind of works out well because the thing I would want to draw out about what happens in 38 is is shedding light forward on what's going to happen here with Joseph and uh, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. So just as a quick recap, um, what we've been seeing in the last few chapters is Jacob is the main patriarch that we're looking at in this part of Genesis, and his four oldest children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, have one by one shown in their character that they are not really fit um, to lead the family. Um, first, we saw Simeon and Levi um, in the story about Dinah's abuse and how they um, behaved very violently and, um, and really just wiping out all the people in this particular city, avenging, avenging their sister. Reuben, the oldest, um, ended up sleeping with his father's, one of his father's concubines. And all of these are going to be mentioned in chapter 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons. And so in all these first four, he is saying that for this reason, this happened. And there's some kind of a, a note of both blessing and curse on these kids. And so the chapter before this is about Judah. Judah is the fourth born. Um, Then there are many other children through um, wives' servants and through other wives. And then Joseph would actually be the next of his first wife, Leah, um, natural born children. So Judah, um, he has sons, um, one of which has a daughter-in-law named Tamar. And Tamar is widowed, and she doesn't have anybody to carry on the family line. And so what was the practice then is that Judah would, have, would give the widow to his other son so that they could continue the line through them. And one by one, they behaved wickedly, and it says that because of their wickedness, then God put them to death, um, except for one child. And because Judah knew that that child, would the same fate would fall to him, He did not give his last son um, to Tamar. And so what happens is Tamar ends up deceiving Judah through dressing up like a prostitute, seducing Judah, um, having a child by him, and then calling him out publicly by withholding his um, staff and his signet ring as proof. And it is just a mess of a chapter from beginning to end showing the, just the, the wickedness that is involved even in the people of God, in the people that God has chosen for himself. And that story is important because when we read this section on Joseph, is because it's going to be a mirror of that, but Joseph is going to behave very, very differently than Judah did. And this is why I say all this when we jump in. This is a great chapter that gives us an opportunity to wrestle with God's sovereignty 
and with human responsibility at the same time. And with the wickedness in the people of God and their inclusion yet still and God commending certain people for even their goodness. And that at times we have seen the people of God just be a mess and God include them in his own people through which he would give his own son just for that reason that he might proclaim his grace to the worst of sinners. And at the same time, he also calls out some of his people for their own, wick- for their own wickedness at that time and he commends others for their goodness and that he can display his name even through the good decisions that they make. And that is always intention throughout the whole book of Genesis and that is intention here in this section as well. So that's all set up to keep in mind and just to get us in the um, posture where we can wrestle these th- with these things as we go forward. So let's go to the reading of God's Word. This will be um, Genesis chapter 39 in its entirety. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him, and he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, 
because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray briefly. Dear Father, be with us in this time as we study your word. That you would send your, send your spirit, you would teach us, that you would help your message in this to be clear, that you would apply it to the areas of our lives we need it applied to, that you would convince us of the goodness of what you have given us in Jesus, and that you would build us up in steadfastness of hope in following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder how this passage strikes you as we read it. Like this is one of those stories that you just, it's just so bothersome on, on so many levels. Like we can um, give Joseph applause here. In some ways there's a sense of relief, I think, in the Bible that one of the characters is actually making good decisions um, and is uh, not giving in to the wickedness that he could. And then at the same time, we think about ourselves, and it also seems like, well, and you know, we feel a little nervous because we know about the areas in our own lives where we are not like Joseph. Um, that makes us uncomfortable. And, but largely, it's just so cruel, like all these events of Joseph's life that he has gone through, um, to be manipulated in this way, to be slandered in this way, to do nothing but good and to get nothing but evil back for it. The injustice of it is just, it's just terrible. Um, it, it, it doesn't feel good reading the story that this can happen. And there's a lot of ways that we can relate to this. Like, I mean, many and some of you in this room could have a story where like something similar is ha- like a gross injustice has happened to you. And this is kind of a visceral thing of knowing what it's like to be in Joseph's shoes and to be slandered um, and to suffer in this way. But I think that in other ways, like we all know what it is like to, for our character to be misrepresented in some ways, for somebody to spread things about us and to not be able to defend ourselves and what that feels like, um, for our motives to be misjudged, um, especially before other people. So either in just concept or in real life, that, that this kind of injustice that's here strikes a chord with many of us. And that's true. But what I want to do here is look at, um, we'll keep the individual situation in view, but I want to look at, look at a bigger picture view of what's going on, and that is the repeated setback. And that is the, one of the main things that stands out about Joseph's story is that it's not just one bad thing. But it is one bad thing, and then another bad thing, and then another bad thing after that. And here's why this is important. You think about who this book was written to and when it was given to the people of God. Genesis was given to the people of God on Mount Sinai, after they have already been delivered out of Egypt, and they are going on a journey through a wilderness to the Promised Land. So if you are in that community, your life is defined by ups and by downs, by great, as, great examples of God's deliverance, followed by examples of what seems like God's absence, the up and the down, the continuous setback, the continuous hardship, um, the obstacles to where you're going. And so one scholar put this really, really well. If this is one of the main reasons this whole story about Joseph is here in the Bible... 
um, particularly thinking about the original audience, is the lack of hope that comes with setbacks that come again and again and again and again. And the message through what God is doing here to keep going, to not resign to giving up, but to keep pursuing what God has called us to do, to keep walking in the little ways day after day after day after day. So that's, that's the situation that we face often, the repeated setback, and that's going to be the command where God wants us to get to keep going and to keep going. And what I want us to do is kind of take a journey and how do we get there and unpack what this is saying and how this story actually helps bridge the gap to get us to do that. And we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the what God has called us to do. It's God's calling. And then the last two points will be how do we do that. First, God's presence. And then lastly, we'll look at God's plan and more of a big picture view. So first, let's look at God's calling. If you would look at this passage, there's a couple things that stand out in a way that's repeated, which the author is showing us this is very important. And that is, look at Joseph's life and what is characterized by here in this situation of hardship. Like, what keeps happening to him no matter where he is put? One, bad things happen. But before that, something else. And that everywhere Joseph goes... He is actually a blessing to the situation where he has been put. He is a blessing to those that are around him. And as we see that word blessing, particularly repeated, is that this, the author is picking up on aspects of the story that have been there all along, that actually go all the way back, um, back to creation, but particularly to Genesis chapter 12, when God called Um, Joseph's great-great-great-grandfather Abraham to follow him and to start this new people. And if you'll remember what God said to Abraham, he said to get up, go from your country and your your kindred, your father's house and all is there, and I will make you a blessing. So there is a promise that God attaches to Abraham that through Abraham, he will end up blessing not just his family, but all families and all peoples everywhere. But there's this interesting other side to it in the language it used. He says, I will make you a blessing so that you will be a blessing. And that there's a command aspect that is part of the people of God that is essential to who they are and who God has called this people to be. They are the vehicle through which God will bless all people. But there is also a particular calling put on this people to be a blessing in a selfless way to serve, to seek the good of everybody that they might come in contact with, not even their own people. And guess what we see here happening with Joseph? That this is God's guy that he is leading, and everywhere he goes, then the main evidence um, that God is with him and is following him is that he actually is a blessing to the people that he is around. And how's that so? Look at the things that are repeated here. Um, the Lord was with Joseph. He became successful in all of his house. It mentions in his house and in his field. These are everyday things that he was involved in, that he was, he was managing. Um, everything he did, he had success. Um, and similar things are said at the end when Joseph goes to prison, um, said of the prison guard. So this is what we're looking at is we're not looking at any kind of spiritual heroism here. 
and that the way he was blessing the people around him was through very ordinary, daily acts. That he was being successful in managing the house and in managing the field. That means he made good business decisions. That he was reputable, he was honest, he was creative. All these things that would take for him to be successful. And not only for himself, but all this was to the end that his master uh, would flourish. But there's another side to this too, outside of just these ordinary dealings. There's the phrase that stood out to me when I read this. Uh, look in verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So one of the main ways that Potiphar and the similar thing for the prison guard at the end, how they were blessed, was because of Joseph's honest character. And that the prison, the prison guard and Potiphar could not even pay attention to whatever was happening. They were not afraid of being stolen from. They were not afraid of time being mismanaged or wasted. They knew that whatever of his own stuff was in Joseph's hands, then it was the same as if it was in his own hands. And this is actually the ethic that is proclaimed even in the Ten Commandments. If you, when, you, when you look at the law, just the Ten Commandments and how it's applied, like just take the Eighth Commandment, the do not steal, um, which is kind of in, in view here. This isn't just so that you can check off a box and be righteous. This isn't just so that you can be a good person yourself, but it has a social implication that God would envision a community where people don't have to worry about their stuff. That you could leave your stuff outside. You could let your neighbor borrow your stuff and not worry how it is going to be returned. You see how this is going? Joseph is a blessing by just ordinary daily tasks. It could be in a job. It could be in the home like it is here. It could be anywhere. And the last question part of this is where? Like where does he do this? It's not in the most convenient place. It is not even in the middle of people who worship the same way he did. Like Potiphar's house would have been full of idols. He would have been serving the Egyptian state. Um, He is a captive He's a slave owner. And it is there that God put him so that he would be a blessing. Even in foreign territory, then Joseph is modeling what it means to be part of the people of God by seeking the good of whoever he is put in the middle of, whoever he is around. And this is not saying, you could look at Daniel as another example, but it is not saying that he would have to go along with worship of other gods, he should not. But it is saying that the calling of the people of God is to be a blessing to other people and through that blessing that God's name would be known. God's justice would be known. God's goodness would be known. And as Joseph models that for even the first century Israelite, we can see how that applies to us as well because being part of the people of God is no different. We have been put in many spheres. We have been put in many different callings. We have been put in many different places. And the mark of the people of God is this selfless, self-away, 
love, and blessing to whoever he has put us in, in the midst of. Even when it's difficult, even when there are people that we don't necessarily like, even when there are people we would not say are necessarily on our team. That's the calling that Joseph models. And that is a hard calling. Like, so the next question we get to is, how in the world can anybody do this? And so, let's read on, and we're going to see a few other things. So the next part of this is God's presence. And that's, I just get, one of the other unique things about this chapter that is repeated, of what, what's said multiple times. Look in verse 2. So Joseph was brought down there. Uh, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was brought to Egypt. He was bought as the property of someone else. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And the Lord saw to it, he granted him favor in the eyes of him around him. He made him successful. The Lord calls all that he did to succeed in his hands. And again in the end, verse 21, when he is in prison, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is a theme that is going to go through the whole section of this story. Um, But it actually shows up more in this chapter than it is in the chapters to come. Both God's using his own name and saying that he is with Joseph. And this is just a way of saying that wherever Joseph has been put, whatever task he has been given, the Lord is with him. And the real one behind the story who is pulling the strings of this success is not Joseph, but is God. Let's think about Joseph first. So Joseph has gone through a little bit of a change. Is as Will said last week, when he was with his brothers, he had these dreams. Um, and he's kind of a snotty character that we don't really like. And we don't fully, we might say that's a little extreme of his brothers, but we don't fully blame them. He wasn't that successful in navigating these issues when he was before at home. But here, as he has been led to this place with a particular purpose, then it says that God is with him. And God calls what Joseph did to succeed. That there is another puller behind the strings that is actually at the right time granting the success in the way that it should go. And it is God. That God is the one who is moving the story along. God is the one who is making his name known through Joseph. God is the one who is carrying Joseph along and enabling to do what he has asked him to do. And he, and we see that it work. Uh, it works, that he is successful. He is liked, he moves on up, and that there are good markers in this story that show us here that God is on the move. This is not just about Joseph, but it is more about God and what he is up to. And as we read this, you might have your own examples of your own story where um, you've been in really hard places and the Lord has moved and hard things have been turned into good things. I, the, one of the um, things that popped in my mind first is when we were actually looking for a job and before the Lord brought us here, there were three different times in a row we thought we had found it and we were one of the last two people to be candidating for this job and they fell through at the last minute. And it really felt like three strikes and you're out Like at the end. It was really like, talk about repeated setbacks. And Lord, you have called us to this and you have not provided what gives. What are you going to do? And zoom out, 
where did he end up putting us, was right here, with people that we love and a place that we really wanted to be. Good moral to the story. Way better place than we would be in any of the other places. Here's the catch. If we say that about that, if that is the evidence that God is good and that he is active in your story and that we see a bow tied on the end of it, what conclusions do we have to draw about the other stuff? What conclusions do we have to draw about when things don't get tied up, when they're not good? Does that mean that the Lord is not behind those things and that he is not with us and that he is not active in moving the story along? This story is a good illustration of the opposite of this at the same time and that we have the benefit of the full picture of Joseph but Joseph, does, as a character, does not have the benefit of what is coming. And to Joseph, the way that the Lord is moving is he actually puts him in hard situation after hard situation after hard situation. And this is why this is tough. Because God doesn't do any injustice to Joseph, and he never does to anybody. He is always good. However... Knowing where God is leading Joseph in the story, God is actually leading Joseph into situations where bad things are going to happen to him. And God allows that to happen. And at the same time of God's presence and his care of Joseph, he actually leads him into places he doesn't want to go. And what this narrative is showing us is that God is present there too. God is pulling the strings behind that story too. In the good and the bad, God is the real mover. He is making the story go just the way that he wants it to. So here's the, you know, I want us to feel that. Because we don't have the view of God. We don't know what he's doing. And in a way that's comforting, we like to say that God is behind stuff, that God is in control, that he's working good. But... How hard is that to not know it? And this actually is good news in one way, but it brings up all kinds of questions that we have um, at the very same time. If God's going to do this, is the end actually going to be good? And maybe not just good, is the end actually going to be the end that I would choose if I had to got to sit up and pick the destination of my life? Is that going to be the case? What about the situations where they are just too far gone and there is no way for a bow to be tied onto that story and it to end up in good? A lot of stories don't have a neat ending, as you all know very, very well. This could be anything, but even thinking about, let's think about death in particular. Death is the ultimate example, like this, how can this something that is final, actually turn into a good thing? What about relationships that are broken that can't be repaired? What about divorce? Those kinds of things. What about situations that are too far gone? And on top of all this, this is one of the main questions that leaves me, like even knowing that, am I going to make it? You know, I can try to keep going in light of that, but do I have the toughness and the fiber to actually persevere um, when things get hard. And knowing my society, I tend to be a high-low kind of guy. Like, 
stern collected outside with a with a brewing storm inside, and you never know what it's going to what it is in any given moment. May the odds ever be in your favor. So, but like I get very discouraged, and it's not just about knowing what is the end, but it's about can you get there? Is it about can you get through the process even in the middle of the hardship? And this is why we're getting the last point of God's plan. And that this is not just about God's sovereignty and it is not just about his presence in the moment, but it is about a bigger story. And this is where, if there's one twist in this, where I want to twist our thinking just a little bit is this. So we, when we come to this story as um, good, hardworking um, American people who really want to take you know, the bull by the horns and do things our own way, we tend to identify with Joseph in this story. Like, how do we be like Joseph? How do we do what Joseph did? How do we persevere like Joseph? If you were an Israelite of the first century, the first person you identify with is not Joseph. But it's with the people of God that Joseph was sent for. See, the people of God who are wandering around in the desert, they have a person that God raised up at the right time to be their representative in Egypt, to lead them out. And so the way that they know that God is going to take care of them and he is not going to let them go, it is not based on them, but it is based on the one that God sent. And that was Joseph. And we too, in that way, have even Joseph as an example that he did not abandon the people of God, but at the right time he raised the right person and did the right things with it. But you can get where we're going with this from our view of the story. And that that set the pattern of how God was going to work in his people throughout all of his history. And that in the fullness of time, of which Joseph is a shadow and Joseph was preparing for, God sent Jesus at the right time, just like we read in Acts chapter 2. According to his foreknowledge, at the right time, God sent Jesus Christ, handed him over to suffer. At the hands of godless men, but he used even their godlessness to bring about exactly what he wanted to happen so that he could deliver you. And that he would be your representative. His righteousness would stand. His commitment would stand. And that you would get to benefit for what he did. This is where the story is going and what it is, what it is all about. And what does this say to us? If that is true, this shows us what the end of the path is. This is a story about resurrection coming from death. It is not a story about death alone. But it is a story where God often works resurrection through death. It is not a story that's absent of hardship, but it is a story where God gets the final word. Because of Jesus, it is clear what is the the way. He has not withheld his plan for salvation. He has not withheld all of his sovereign plan for you in the world, but he has given you this signpost in the cross of what God intends to do with you, what he will do with you, what he is guaranteed to do. The cross guarantees his disposition towards you no matter where you are, no matter what you're dealing with. This is the answer to those unresolved problems. And that in Christ's death and resurrection, it shows that things die In this life, things are broken that cannot be repaired. But this is a story that doesn't end with this life, but is one of resurrection that comes from death.
And when we're thinking about God's presence, it is all about His Spirit. That Jesus Christ, rather than showing up in particular times to, to accomplish His will, He has actually sent His Spirit to attach yourself to Him so that He is always with you. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, working exactly what God has accomplished. So the effect of this is that God has given us a representative. He knew that in wherever you are, that your faith is going to get weak, you're going to get tired, you're going to run away, you're going to throw a temper tantrum. And rather than hold you in particular account for that, instead, he sent Jesus to die for you. So you always have him, and you always know what he is about. He will lead us places where we don't want to go. And this is, in just closing here, some of you may have seen this. I was just flipping through ESPN, um, and there was this Vine video or Instagram video of Tom Brady, NFL quarterback, and his daughter. They were jumping off a cliff into a quarry, and it was kind of comical. So they're holding hands, and he's talking to her, and they say, one, two, three, ready, go. And then Tom Tom jumps, and his daughter doesn't jump, and she's like, ah! And she's like, but he doesn't let go, and he pulls her in. You are attached to Christ. He will lead you in places you don't want to go. But he is the one who went there first. He is always the one who is with you. He is always the one who is going to finish the journey, and he won't let you go. So the task for us is that we would persevere in light of Jesus. That we would let go of ourselves and we would put our trust on him. Persevering in love, persevering in serving, persevering in all those simple daily things that he has called us to. The things right in front of us. And he is at work and he will finish the story in a good way as he sees fit. Let's pray that he would work in us that he would be able to do that. Dear Father, thank you for the good news that you have given us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you won't let us go. Father, we came in here this morning from many difficult situations and we will go back out to them just the same. And we ask that in your spirit that you would not only hold on to us from the outside, but that you would show us your presence on the inside. You would give us faith that we might be able to depend on you and that we might be free from our own work and free and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.